a life-changing work for the glory of your name. In Jesus' mighty name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Actually, you are seating. Praise the Lord. Love that. Love that. Hey, 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 love that. Hey, you know what? I got to tell you, like, week after week, I say this in staff meetings, I say this in our leadership team meetings, like, that time of corporate prayer is just beautiful. Praise the Lord for the fervency of prayer in his church. Amen? Prayer, when he says, my house will be a house of prayer, oh, Lord, keep it a priority. Amen? All right, let's get after it. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, loved ones, here we are, uh, carrying on in our series in the Gospel of John. And this portion, part four of our John series, is called The Triumphant King. The Triumphant King. And I got to tell you where we are in the text right now. The Passion Week, actually uh, now here, the day of Christ's crucifixion. It looks anything but that Jesus is triumphant. It looks like it's a disaster in the making. But what the purpose of this series is, and the, this last section of the book of John, chapters 18 to 21, the focus is on who Jesus is as our sovereign king. And not just, okay, that's great, that's who Jesus is, but how are we called to live in light of that truth? How do we take it into the streets? How do we take it when we hear the next newscast come on? when we're in the workplace, when we read what's happening all over the world, how are we to live in light of the truth that Jesus is the sovereign and triumphant king? Now let's make sure we're on the same page here. Um, What we're talking about with Jesus' sovereignty. Well, if you recall from the first part of this series, sovereignty is God having supreme power over all things and working them out, get this, by his grace, out of his mercy, in his patience, out of his truth, in true justice, and out of his love for his glory and for the good of those who love him. This is the focus again and again that John in this section is driving home. And so last week we saw part one of this two-part message called Behold Your King. And we saw that if we are to have life in Jesus' name, I'm not talking about the good life that this world calls. I'm talking about true life, the way life was intended to be in Jesus Christ, both now and into eternity. If we are to have life in Jesus' name and live faithfully on mission in light of who he is, no matter what's happening around us, here's what we got to do, loved ones. We need to behold our king. Behold our king at all times And in all things, or we're going to sidetrack, the focus shifts, there you go. We need to behold our king. Now, what does it mean to behold? Remember, it means to look at and have your gaze or your eyes fixed on. Now, why is this so important that John would drive this home again and again and again? Here's why, ready? Listen up, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. We become like what we behold. I'm going to say it again. Ready? Let's say it together. Go. We become like what we behold. What are you beholding? Or who are you beholding? You and I become like what we behold. We start to take on the characteristics of that. 
And with all that's happening around us, let me ask you the question. Are you beholding and fixing your eyes on your king who is sovereign and triumphant in these days? Are you fixing your eyes on him? See, here's the problem, and I think you'll see it right from there, loved ones. We're often not doing this, are we? We're taking our eyes off Jesus so often, and we fix our attention on so many other things. What do you, you say, what do you mean by that? Let's break this down, give us some help here. Uh, we fix our attention on ourselves. I want my agenda, I want my schedule, I want my way, and then when it doesn't happen, what do we do? We fight for control. I'm becoming about me because that's who I'm beholding. How about this? Um, we, we focus or fix our attention on others. Well, I want what they have. Why are they married and I'm not? Why do they have that position and status and I don't? And what happens is we start to behold other people. Our eyes come right off Christ. And then that swells up in us bitterness, jealousy, Resent you become like what you behold. Here it is again. Um, we start to take on the values or priorities of this world when our eyes come off Christ. And what's the result? Well, if you're not saved in Jesus Christ, here's the result. If we refuse to behold him, hear the word of the Lord, it is death apart from him in hell for eternity without repentance. And if we are saved as believers, listen, loved ones, what does it lead? lead to? If we fix our eyes on all these other things, our gaze comes off from beholding Jesus Christ, in that moment, here's what happens. Despair and eventual destruction in our walk with the Lord as we behold these other things and seek to find the life in them that can only be found in Him. Disappointment every time. Loved ones, here's the big idea for this text. Write this down. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus is the sovereign king, and you must behold and believe in him to have life. I'm going to drill this home again. Jesus is the sovereign king, and you and I at all times and in all things must behold and believe in him to have life. Life. Let's get our context. Here we are. It's Passover in Jerusalem, and there's literally thousands of people in Jerusalem, actually 600,000 plus, as every Jewish male 12 plus has come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire to worship. And it's early Friday morning of the Passover week. You say, how do you know that? Verse 14 in our text today tells us, it says it was the day of preparation. The day of preparation, where the Passover, get this, Look at this. Look at Jesus' sovereignty. Where the Passover lambs are being prepared to be sacrificed to make atonement for sin. This is where we find ourselves today. Jesus hours away from his own sacrificial death. Welcome to your sovereign king. And it's a short time before his crucifixion. Now let's recall from last week, Jesus is on trial in the Roman governor's house. Who's the Roman governor? Pilate. And we're not 100% sure where this is, but there's strong evidence to say it's in the Antonia Fortress. You'll see it on the screen. So it's adjacent to the temple courtyard there. That's Pilate's headquarters. Now Pilate didn't like Jerusalem. He didn't like hanging out there. I used to live in Jerusalem. I like Jerusalem. He didn't like it. 
He actually, that was the place where he went. That was his house when there were festivals so he could keep law and order to prevent a riot from happening. He's got a nice house up in Caesarea the rest of the year on the Mediterranean. But here's Jesus in this Antonia fortress. And the scene in that temple, as you see it, keep it on the screen, as you see it, the scene all around there, it's a mob scene. It's not a scene of worship. It's not a scene of preparation. It's the exact opposite. It's a mob. Why? Because the Jewish leaders, they just charge Jesus with blasphemy for his claim to be God Almighty, to be the one true king. And what they've done is they have brought him before Pilate to have him crucified. Now, up to this point, remember, loved ones, Pilate... He's having a problem because he has found no guilt in Jesus. He's said that already, and he'll say it again twice more today. He's found no guilt in Jesus. And so what, what he did at the end of uh, chapter 18, he gave the Jews a choice. It was a tradition where the governor could say, we're going to release one prisoner for you as a gesture of goodwill. He says, do you want this Jesus who's innocent, or do you want this insurrectionist murderer Barabbas? And they chose Barabbas. And so from this point on, their anger and hatred towards Jesus is building. It's swelling. And Pilate, for the life of him, cannot fathom this. And even though, hey, loved ones, be be so encouraged with this. Even though it seems like total chaos right now, remember this. Jesus is in sovereign control. Over every detail, over every part of this. He's planned it, and he's working it out. Everyone say, kids, nice and loud. Jesus is working it out. Go. That's right. Jesus is working it out. And here it is, this mob scene, and Jesus is working it out. And the same today. You believe that? Jesus is working it all out for his glory today? And for the good of those who love him? You believe that when you turn on the TV? We've got to fight that unbelief, loved ones. Jesus is working it out. And so here in our text, we're going to see this so clearly as we look at three truths of who Jesus is as our sovereign and triumphant king that we must behold and believe daily if we are to have life in his name and live faithfully on mission for him in these days. You ready to go? Hey, kids, grab your Bibles. Kids, eyes up. Let's grab our Bibles. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word as we read it together. John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. We're going through it. Let's do this, loved ones. John 19, Jesus delivered to be crucified. Nice and loud. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be, them to be crucified. Hear the word of the Lord, loved ones. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. All right, here we go. Notebooks ready, Bibles open, pens in hand. Let's do this, loved ones. Behold the sovereign king, Jesus. Here it is. He is the humble king. Behold the man. The humble king. Behold the man. Get this. Jesus humbled himself out of love for the sake of the gospel. Will you? I'll say it again. Jesus humbled himself out of love for the sake of the gospel. Will you? Will I? Look at verses 1 to 5 again. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. You see, after the crowds demand Pilate release Barabbas, Pilate knows something's off here. He knows Jesus is innocent. And so he's got a problem now. So he's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to attempt to satisfy and appease the crowds so I can release Jesus. Okay? But he knows he's got a problem with the Jews as they're about to rebel against him. So what is his strategy? Did you notice the text? Look at verse 1. What's Pilate's strategy? To flog Jesus. Now, <clears throat> What does flogging mean? There were different severities of flogging from a light flogging, just kind of roughing a guy up, to a more uh, drastic flogging that literally tortured a prisoner to an inch of his life. And the, the word flog here means that Roman soldiers would scourge or whip a victim repeatedly. 
there would be a group of about four soldiers and the whip has many different leather heads and there were pieces of sharp bone on the end of it. And every single one of them would whip it into Jesus and yank it off his back. And they would keep doing this until one got tired, then they'd pass it over to the next one. There was no limit to the number of lashes. And so this was going on again and again. And the purpose of this flogging was to humiliate or shame and weaken a prisoner before death. And so after flogging Jesus, notice the text, the soldiers, they further humiliate and mock him for his claim to be a king that he said in John 18, 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, indicating he's a king. So what do these guys do to mock him? They twist a crown of thorns together. It was made of date palms. You'll see it on the screen. This wasn't like your typical little thorn in your backyard on a rose flower or something that are about like that big. Date palms, which are still very prevalent in Jerusalem, especially around the old city, they could be up to 12 inches long. The thorn of a date palm could be up to 12 inches. We're starting to get the severity, aren't we? And they twist this crown of thorns together. And notice what they do from the text. They throw a purple robe on him. Now, why is John so specific in the detail? Because purple was the color of royalty. A king's robe, an emperor's robe, was purple. And so they throw it on him. And then notice the text. They sarcastically start paying homage paying homage to Jesus by crying out in verse 3, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail! And then they follow that up promptly with slap across the face. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Did you know he's doing that for you and me? Hail, King of the Jews! I love my church. Hail, King of the Jews! Repeatedly, again, and again, and again inside Antonia Fortress. And then you notice in 4 to 5 what happens next. Pilate moves from privately humiliating Jesus. If that wasn't bad enough, he's privately humiliating him in his house to publicly humiliate him by coming back into the courtyard where the Jewish mob is and declaring Jesus' innocence again. Do you see that? I find no guilt in him. And he brings Jesus back out in front of them. Now picture what Jesus was like. Swollen. Bruised. Sliced open, beaten, bleeding, looking pathetic and harmless. Beaten beyond recognition. Romans knew how to flog people well. And Pilate declares, you see that in verse 5? He brings Jesus out, wrapped in a purple robe, crown of thorns. He goes, behold the man. 
Behold the man. Here's what that means. Look at this guy. Do you, do you Jews honestly think this guy right here is a threat to anyone? Look at him. He's pathetic. He just had the tar beaten out of him. And you think he's a threat to you? Behold this man. He's frail. He's weak. You think he's got any power? You think he's a real king? Where are his subjects? Now here's the key, what we need to see. Did you see it in the text? Verse five, who's really in control here? The sovereignty of Jesus is displayed through the humanity of Jesus. Did you catch it? First off in verse three, where they say the soldiers, they're slapping him across the face. They're torturing him. And they say, hail king of the Jews. Guess what? They were right. Weren't they? Here they are declaring the divinity of Jesus perfectly. The, the authority of Jesus. See, who's really in control here? They're declaring better than they know. And notice it. Did you see it again in verse five? Pilate says, behold the man. He's thinking, look at this pathetic guy. Did you see the sovereignty of God? Behold the perfect man. Perfected manhood. Behold the God man. Pilate's declaring better than he knows. And John's going out of his way to show this irony right here. The sovereignty of God. Behold the man, Jesus, who is perfect, who is sinless, who is the God-man and is the perfect standard for what all men are called to be. Not posturing or clamming for success. My big paycheck. Got big coconuts on my shoulders. No, I got the position I want. No. I can play some good games. No. Behold the man. The perfect man. Not clamoring for status so that this world cries out to him, you're the man. Like we love to hear. You're the man. You got the job. You got the girl. You got the car. You got... Behold this man. The perfect man. Time to get off our pedestals, guys. Behold the man. And here he is, displaying God's perfect glory through his grace and love and mercy as Jesus is sovereignly through all of this, slap after slap, working out God's perfect plan of salvation from his great love for us. Loved ones, you look at that screen, you'll see it again. Behold your humble king. The perfect, sinless, all-powerful, the creator and sustainer of all things, the son of God who has all power and authority. And you know what's really mind-blowing, loved ones? Hey, up here, kids, eyes up right here. Want to see some great, want to hear some great news? Watch this. Okay, watch this. While the soldiers are beating him, Jesus is giving them breath to do it. 
He's giving them the strength to go another lash on him. To hit him again. He's giving them the voice to mock him. Who's in control here? It ain't the Roman soldiers. It's not the Jews. It is the sovereign king, the eternal one who was dwelling, notice this, before becoming fully God and fully man, Jesus is fully God in eternity and he's dwelling in perfect unity and intimacy with the Father in the glory of heaven, knowing what it would cost him. What did he do? He humbled himself to come to earth and take on flesh. He became a man. Are you beholding this man? He came to be despised by the very ones he loves. Allowing them to treat him this way in order to offer eternal life through paying the penalty for their sin, your sin, my sin upon the cross. Are you beholding them, true man? See, Jesus humbled himself out of love for the sake of the gospel. Here's the question, loved ones, facing you and I out of this. Will you? Will you humble yourself? Maybe you're here and you've never confessed Christ as your personal savior. Here's what it means to humble yourself before the king of kings. It means to repent of your sin, turn from it, and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, knowing that there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. That's where you humble yourself and believe and confess, behold my King. But for believers, those who've made this decision, you may say this, you may say, well, what does walking in humility for the sake of the gospel look like? All right, I told you, get your Bibles ready. Here we go. Philippians chapter two. Slide over to Philippians chapter two. Flip over there. Philippians chapter two. Here is what Christ-like humility looks like. If we are truly beholding the man, this is what the impact is on our lives by his power. Watch this. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3, it says this, the command, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That means out of your pride and mine. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Can you see how Jesus is doing this right here? See how he's doing that? Count others more significant. Even when, now, now this seems so small on this level, but when someone cuts you off in traffic, count someone more significant than yourself. You think we could do that with our king going through this for us? He's given us the power to do this. Count others more significant than yourselves. When you feel wronged, don't go and slander them. Don't go and gossip about them. Behold the man. Those who are mistreating him, he's giving his life for. Will you? Will I? Are we beholding the men or are we beholding me? It says, count others more significant. Here's another one, verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. You before me. 
Husbands and wives in marriages, are we doing that? So much of the conflict we face in marriage is because we make it about me. It's time to behold the man. And there he says, Have this mind among yourselves, church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Right here. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Here it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Loved one, where do you need to behold your king and humble yourself in his power for the sake of the gospel? Let's get practical because I really want this to be helpful. Get practical. Okay, in your marriages. Husbands, are you living with your wives in an understanding way, as 1 Peter 3 says? That your prayers would not be hindered? There's a lot on the line there. Are you living in an understanding way? Humbling yourself to say, you before me. How can I serve you? I'm not going to snap back. I'm not going to be harsh with you by the power of Jesus Christ in me. Because if we try to white knuckle that, we're in trouble every time. We need the power of the one who did it perfectly. Wives, are you considering the interests of your husband? Are we trying to, well, it's up to me to change him. That's not going to go well. And husbands, It's not for you to say, I got to change my way. That's not going to go well. There's only one who can change a life. Are you being gentle? Are you, here's one, are you listening? Are you laying your life down to see the gospel glorified in your partner's life? Is it more about Jesus you want to see behold or yourself? How about this? Hey, in in our parenting too, are kids able to say, I'm beholding Jesus by how you speak to me, mom and dad? Or are we snapping at our kids when they don't do what we want? So often we want to parent kids that we don't think should need parenting. It just doesn't work like that. Are we snapping at them or are we allowing them to behold the man of God at work in us for his glory? Life-changing, loved ones. Who do we truly want them to behold? Hey, kids, kids, eyes up here. Kids, eyes up. Oh, love your faces. Yes. Love these kids. Hey, loved ones. Hey, whole church, can we just give our Hope Kids, just a warm, loving appreciation. We love you so much. Come on. Yeah, that's right. Jump around. That's right. Come on. We love you, Hope Kids. We love you. But kids, listen to this. Here, here. Ready for a challenge? Say, I'm ready. All right. Here's a challenge. When you disobey your parents, okay, listen, listen. When you disobey your parents... Are you getting angry with them because they caught you and storming off to your rooms and and calling them names? Or are you saying this? Ready? Say it after me. I'm sorry. Say it again. I was wrong. 
I have no excuse. Please forgive me. And then, kids, kids, eyes up. We're not done yet. Eyes up here. Are you saying that to your brothers and sisters when you sin against them? Let's say it again. Ready? Just so we get it. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I have no excuse. Please forgive me. Behold the man. You might not have it all figured out yet about salvation, but you are allowing your parents, your brothers and sisters to see the Lord. How about this? How about this? Are we beholding the man by, by giving opportunities when we have the opportunity to share the gospel? Are we allowing others to behold him or are we ducking in fear from sharing it for fear those people won't like us anymore? How about this? Where do we need to humble ourselves? Um, <clears throat> here it is. And repent of our criticism and grumbling toward God saying, I know better. Where do we need to humble ourselves for the sake of the gospel? Here's another one. And stop either speaking or listening to slander and gossip. Are we shutting it down? Oh, but they're like juicy morsels coming into the soul, Proverbs says, right? Not when you're beholding the man, the king, who humbled himself, because it's our pride that wants us to listen to that and speak it, even though we know it is sinful. How about this? Do we need to humble ourselves and, for the sake of the gospel and take correction from that brother or sister that loves you? That loves you enough to say, look, you're, I see this going. It's not going to end well. Are we humble ourselves to take correction? Are we getting defensive? Like, no, that's not me. That's not my problem. That's you. Who are you to judge me? Wait. Stop. Stop. Are we humbling ourselves to take correction? How about this? Taking responsibility and not blaming others for your sin or wrongdoing. Well, I would have done it, but you. Really? Well, I would have had that done, but that guy. Really? Where do we just need to take responsibility and say, I was wrong? And behold the humility of Jesus. Laying down our preferences. Not every one of our preferences is a hill to die on, loved ones. Consider the interests of others. Here, here's why this is so important. We'll sum it up with this truth right here. You'll see it on the screen. A high view of Jesus' sovereignty results in a low view of your pride. Say it again. A high view of Jesus' sovereignty will result in a low view of your pride. Why? Because it bursts the priority of the advancement of the gospel and not an advancement of yourself in that moment. That's what humility does. That is what recognizing the sovereignty of Jesus and the power of his humility that he shed his blood for us does for us in our lives. It's no longer about us advancing ourselves. It's about seeing the gospel advance. 
in our marriages, in our families, in our co-workers, in our neighbors, you name it. Behold the sovereign King Jesus, the humble king, the humble king. And with this, to stay faithful and living on mission, here it is, number two, we must behold the sovereign King Jesus who is the ruling king and behold his power. If we're going to walk in humility, we must behold our ruling king, his power. Jesus, hey, be encouraged. Eyes up here, eyes up here. Love that you're writing it down. I so love it. But eyes up here for a second. Okay? Jesus rules with all authority and power. Will you trust him? Right now, just like he is here. Jesus rules with all power and authority. Will you trust him? Look, look at the text. It's so good. Start at verse six. Let's go to 10. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Well, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Hey, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? See what's happening here, loved ones? Pilate's attempt to satisfy the Jewish leaders doesn't work. Go figure. Why? Because you can't stop Christ's sovereignty. So of course they're not going to be appeased. It's Christ's plan that they're not appeased. So it's not working. And so what they do, (laughs) the Jewish mob takes it up a notch and they scream and cry out for Jesus to be crucified. To which Pilate again tells them, he finds no guilt in Jesus. And he notices his sarcastic response there. He sarcastically tells them, go crucify him yourself. He knew they couldn't crucify him. Remember from last week, the Roman government had taken away the authority for them to do that. So here he is mocking them. He's getting a little ticked. Actually, very ticked. They couldn't do that. So to this, the Jews respond in verse 7. Did you notice this? They start quoting the law again. That in the Old Testament law, specifically Leviticus 24, 16, Jesus should die because he blasphemed the name of God by declaring himself to be God. You say, where did he do that? Here's a couple. John 8, 58, he did it. John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. He's declaring himself to be God among many other texts. And so look at Pilate's response in verse eight. He becomes even more afraid. Pilate's getting very fearful right here. Why? Number one, two reasons. Number one, he's got a Jewish mob coming after him. That's the first one. Hey, 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 here's a little sample so we can enter into Pilate's shoes. Anyone ever been a little intimidated by any peer pressure you've ever faced in your life? Hands up. Yeah, tons. Okay, there you go. Pilate's feeling the peer pressure here. He's got a mob coming after him. But secondly, watch this, Pilate is very superstitious. He's very superstitious and he realized that if Jesus' claim was true, that he was God, then Pilate realized he had just tortured a man with divine powers. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. Uh-oh, what's going on here? And so as such, notice what he does in verse nine. He's got to get to the bottom of this. So he goes back into his house, Antonia Fortress, and he asks where Jesus came from, but Jesus doesn't answer him. Why doesn't Jesus answer him? Isn't this his big moment? No, he already tried to answer. Remember in John 18, 36, 
He already told him he was the king. He already said, my kingdom's not of this world. Right? And so here's Pilate's response in verse 10. Look at how he responds. Let the word of God speak right here. He says, do you not know who I am? Here, verse 10. Do, do you not know that I've got the Do you not know who I am? Look at the irony of that statement. The created is trying to pull rank on the creator. Don't you know who I am, Jesus? He's like, yeah, I gave you your eye color. <laughs> don't, don't you know who I am? Yeah, how do you like that hair color I chose? Don't you know who I am? Yeah, and you're only where you are because I let you be there. Don't you know who I Look at the irony of the statement. He's trying to pull rank on the creator. Uh-oh, ready? Just pens down for a sec. How often are you and I trying to do that exact same thing? The created trying to pull rank on the creator. Here's a little example to help us out. <clears throat> God, don't you know who I am? I should have my preferences in this situation. Don't you, don't you know who I am? I should get that position, not that person. Don't, don't you know who I am? Why would this trial come upon me? I didn't do anything to Don't you know who I am? Let's stop trying to pull rank on our king. Because here's what happens when we start to pull rank. How do you know you're doing it? You start to complain. I know better, God. We start to become impatient. We start to get angry when things don't go our way. Look at the last two years. Anyone confronted with this? Don't you know who I am, God? I've earned that. Not that person. What? I'm ready to be married. Don't you know? Careful. Love you. We do it all the time. Let's confess it and get real before the king. All the time. He says, don't you know? I'm the one with the authority here, Pilate says. I'm the one who decides whether you are free or crucified. Don't you know, don't you know Jesus? Your life's in my hands. Actually, look at the irony. It's the exact opposite. Pilate's life is in Jesus' hands. He's like, okay, your breath's gone. He's done. Whose life is really in whose hands here? Now look at, look at verse 11. I love Jesus' response. Here it is, ready? Jesus answered him, hey kids, check this out. So beautiful, watch. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You know what we call that? That's the mic drop moment of John 19. Just you would have nothing, man. What authority do you think you have that I didn't give you? See, Jesus declares the only reason Pilate has any power at all 
in, the, in that position of authority that he's in is that he's been given that by God, Jesus himself. And he says, Pilate, you might think you're the one ruling here, but ultimately you're not. I am. I am. And the only reason you can do anything with that authority is because I gave it to you. And I'm allowing you to accomplish my purpose. Now, even though you're not carrying out injustice and righteousness like I command, I'm allowing you to hold that to fulfill the responsibility you have to get me to the cross. And as such, the greater sin here is not with you. Pilate, you're still responsible for your actions. But it is with him who has heard me declare the truth I am of the Son of God and the Messiah, but who refused to believe and is handing me over to you. Who's he talking about? Could be talking about Judas. He could be talking about Caiaphas. They heard the truth. They know I'm innocent. And the innocent blood is on their hands. There's the greater sin he's speaking of. Now, full stop. Just look around the world today, maybe on the news that you read today, what you'll face this week. And as one commentator stated, just let this saturate your hearts. I'll say it twice so you can write it down. Even the worst evil cannot stop the sovereignty of God. I'll say it again. Even the worst evil cannot stop the sovereignty of God. And today, Jesus has ultimate authority over all authorities. Everyone, municipally, federally, provincially, globally, every single one of them is only in place because he put them there. And even though, like right here in our text, evil may seem to be prevalent and rampant, and they aren't governing like he desires them to. And even though the authorities may not have interest in honoring the Lord, and that even though we may not understand or see how Jesus is working, how he'll use it for his good, here's what we can trust based on the authority of God's word. We can trust he's sovereign over all of them, is fulfilling his purpose, and is advancing his kingdom, and he cannot be stopped. How do we know this? Just look at Daniel 2, 21a. I'm so blessed by this this week. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. Just be encouraged in that, loved ones. See, Jesus uses all authorities to accomplish his purpose. Will you trust him? Now, this, is, this, is, this needs to be our response of faith. Does anyone, when you look around, does anyone find it hard to trust? Maybe just me. Thanks for your honesty, two people. That's great. All right, here's the thing. Here's the thing. How do we do this? How does Jesus call us to trust and what means of grace is he given? Well, as Philippians 4.16 says, we've got to get back to the basics. Hold fast to what we attain. Number one, we see what's going on in the world. We see evil prevalent. Cast. Cast. You'll see it on the screen. Cast that on the Lord. Don't cast it on your spouse. Don't cast it on your friend because it's going to come off impatient, angry, anxious, and then they're going to get angry and anxious too. Cast it on the Lord first. Cast it on the Lord. How do we know? Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be moved. That's an act of humility. Say, I'm not strong enough to hold this. Okay, first thing, cast it on the Lord. And then this, secondly, cast and pray. 
cast it on him, pray to him. What are we called to pray for our authorities? Look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's the command. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. We are not called to spew animosity. Jesus isn't here. And he had every so-called right to do that. We're not called to spew animosity against them. We're not called to cultivate bitterness in our hearts towards them or slander our leaders or criticize, saying, I know how to govern better. Are you sure? Rather, we are called to pray for them. Right here. What are we called to pray? For their salvation? Pray for wisdom? Pray for humility? Pray for God's true justice? And say, Lord, help my unbelief, increase my faith. So cast upon him, pray to him, and lastly, the outflow of this, obey through him in his power. Cast, pray, obey. There's how we walk in faith in the Lord and not ourselves or others. Obey, just keep reading. First Timothy 2.2, 2. for kings and all who are in high positions, here it is, that, why do we do that? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly. Holy, set apart, distinct, in every way dignified. Submitting to God, obeying to his word, and a commitment to the truth in his power of declaration and demonstration of the gospel. Okay, question, what's your next step there? What do you need to repent of in your unbelief? Where have you been grumbling and not praying? Just look at your last week. See, I want to encourage us with this. There is grace, peace, joy, strength, and faith waiting for you, loved ones. Come to him and behold your sovereign King Jesus. The humble king, our model. The ruling king, our trust. And lastly is this. We close with this. Behold the sovereign King Jesus, our rejected king. Behold your salvation. Behold your salvation. To reject Jesus is to reject all hope. Loved ones, here's the question of our day. Will you believe and stand firm? Look at verses 12 to 16a. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, here he is with Jesus, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, oh, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered over to them to be crucified. See the sixth hour, you'll see there in your text, it's about noon right now. And things go from bad to worse for Pilate as the anger of the Jews increasingly grows and the Jewish mob, knowing that Pilate wants to release Jesus, they now intensify the pressure and manipulation and intimidation. What do they do? Okay, eyes up here. Eyes up here. Yep. What do they do? They play their trump card. They play their big hand. 
right here. Notice the, the strategy changes. They knew that Pilate feared Caesar's, Caesar. And because of some past decisions that Pilate had made, which led to Jewish retaliation that Caesar didn't like, he liked order, they knew Pilate was on a short leash with Rome. They knew it. As such, if he didn't do what they wanted him to do, they would tell Caesar, and that would probably be the end of Pilate. We're not just talking about his position. We're talking about his life. That would be the end of him. No wonder he's afraid. And isn't it, isn't it ironic that the Jews hated Caesar? They hated Roman occupation. They wanted to see them overthrown, and yet now they're using Caesar to their advantage to get what they want. And look at in verses 13 to 15, Pilate's afraid he gives in to their pressure. So here's what he does. He brings Jesus out and he sits on the official judgment seat called the stone platform. You'll see it on the screen. See, Pilate is, Pilate is playing like he has authority here. Pilate actually doesn't have any. The Jewish mob does at this point. But he's posturing. Here I am, this elevated platform, Gabbatha. There's Jesus in the middle. And in disgust, Pilate mocks the Jews again, declaring, Behold your king. Behold this beaten and powerless and pathetic man is the only king you're worthy of. Yet, look at the picture of Jesus' sovereignty. You see it in that statement? Like, isn't it amazing you look at that picture that Jesus is the one controlling the events? That's amazing. Pilate declares better than he knows. And he look what Pilate does. He publicly declares <laughs> the truth that Jesus was in fact the king they needed to confess as their Messiah and Lord. Pilate publicly declares to the world that Jesus is the true king. So look how they respond, 15 and 16. Instead of acknowledging him as their Messiah and their true king, they viciously reject him, even at the expense of, as you see in verse 15, what did they do? The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, who prided themselves on keeping the word, they deny God's word. That they claim so faithfully to uphold, are we? that they claim so faithfully to uphold, they deny the true God himself, that they claim to be so faithful to serve, and they ultimately, notice the terrible words of verse 15, they completely reject Jesus as their Messiah, saying, we have no king but Caesar. They turned their back on God to get what they wanted. Are you? Am I? Where are we turning our back on God to get what we want? Yeah, God, I know. I know the truth of your word, but I'm going to turn away from it to get what I want here. I'm going to justify my sin here because I want this. Are we turning away from our king? And as they reject Jesus, here's what happens. They reject all their hope. And Pilate hands Jesus over to them to be crucified and ultimately hands him over to bring salvation to all who call on his name. And I want to be encouraged with this. See, and Jesus is sovereign. He's so beautiful. He uses even man's rejection to fulfill man's redemption. Oh, behold our awesome, magnificent king. Only Jesus can use man's rejection to fulfill man's redemption. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
To reject Jesus is to reject all hope. Will you believe and stand firm in him? And if you're here and you've never confessed Christ as your savior, in his sovereignty, he has brought you here. It's not a mistake. Will you believe and stop rejecting Jesus? Stop turning away from him as your king and repent of that sin. Call on his name to receive salvation through forgiveness of that sin and live with an unshakable hope because you and I have no hope without him. In this life or the life to come, believing that in him alone is eternal life and he's ready to give it, loved one. He's ready tonight, today, when you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Hey, kids, today when you hear Jesus' voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. He loves you. He wants you to come to him. Will you behold your king and say, yes, Jesus. I don't understand everything about you, but I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Will you come, brothers and sisters? Here's the challenge for us from this. Will you believe and stand firm in the Lord and on his word, clinging to him as your only hope? Not in your stuff in this world, not in people, not in the governments, not in Jesus. Or will you turn your back? Where are you compromising in your obedience, rejecting the hope you have in him, saying, perhaps not with your mouth, but with life? Here it is, here it is. What's your life saying in this moment? I have no king, but fill in the word. I have no king, but my job. And a little Jesus on the side. I have no king, but my bank account. Because I got to see that grow to get some more status. I have no king, but that position I want. I have no king, but my desire for a spouse and children. Where are we saying it? Maybe not with our lips but our hearts are sure declaring it. I have no king but myself, this world, its values, my schedule. Loved ones, will you repent and come and behold your sovereign King Jesus, the humble king who is our model, the reigning king who is our trust, and the rejected king who is our salvation and find life in his great name. Let's pray.